The Creaking Board Written by Bithia Mary Croker Read by Pablo Oliver Bramley Place A fine specimen of an early Jacobean dwelling had been in the Millard family for nearly three centuries. But of late years, the Millards had fallen on evil days. There was no money to maintain the property in fitting state. The farms were let, as well as the shooting. Grazius rented the park to the borders of the pleasure ground. The house was closed and abandoned to dust and spiders. The garden was free to weeds and birds. An elderly couple had been installed in the place as caretakers, but these looked upon it as nothing more or less than a lonesome, drafty, inconvenient abode, a whole mile from the village, and a glass of whiskey. Now and then in summertime lodgers at farms or in the village would walk over to the stately old mansion and bribe Mrs. Pilcher to show them around, and she was not inaccessible. Odd shillings, also the price of tea and bread and butter, made a nice little addition to her weekly wages. She opened the tall doors and the heavy shutters and invited paying visitors into the great saloon, there to gaze upon the Bramley Van Dyke. A handsome cavalier with a satin coat and long fair locks, as well as many other valuable paintings and family portraits by Reynolds and Lely, old lacquered cabinets and Chippendale chairs, wonderful settees, card tables, and screens. Most of the great lofty rooms were half empty, for on the bankruptcy of the late Sir Aubrey Millard, there had been a sensational auction, but the residue happened to be heirlooms, and as such, fixtures, and the house was in the curious condition of being neither unfurnished nor yet furnished. Mrs. Pilcher, as she ushered her customers in and out of apartments and up and down stairs, related many surprising tales of the Millards and gave the house the reputation of being badly haunted. She was a clever old body with a loose tongue and a warm imagination. And such were her powers of description that more than one of her listeners passing late on the distant high road looked down upon the dignified place, standing in a hollow with a sensation of fearsome awe. Young Millard, the owner, was with his regiment in India, there he made the acquaintance of a wealthy American family on tour, and subsequently married the daughter, a charming girl with a fabulous fortune. Young Lady Millard fell in love with Bramley at first sight. It was a place after her own heart, and she hurried from room to room, exclaiming in raptures as she made discoveries of pictures, tapestries, and furniture hailing these one by one as delightful possessions and priceless treasures. The prompt and energetic new mistress commanded that Bramley was to be set in order without delay. The aged pilchers were dismissed with a pension, 
and replaced, first by an army of workmen and upholsterers, and then by a staff of gardeners, grooms, and indoor servants. Soon there were horses and motors in the great empty yard, as well as new stables and a garage. The mouldy justice room was turned into a lounge, and long-deserted Bramley was transformed by that enchanted wand which is known as money. Lady Millard and her husband were young, gay, and popular. They entertained parties for shooting, cricket, and weekends, as London was only forty miles away. They also were entertained, and frequently from home, or spending a week or two in town. On these occasions, the large number of unemployed servants had ample time to themselves, and Satan was not idle. Among the women, Fanny Lappage, second housemaid, was the ringleader in mischief and fun. Moreover, a remarkably pretty girl and a shameless flirt, with half the men at her beck and call. For all her giddiness, she was a first-rate housemaid and never shirked work. Only for this, the housekeeper would have dismissed her. She was too flighty, too saucy, and too pretty. But there was never a better girl for polishing furniture or turning out a room, and besides, her ladyship liked Fanny. Chief among Fanny's slaves was James Hegan, a tall, fine-looking footman, Irish by descent, with jet-black hair and deep-set dark blue eyes. Naturally smart, silent, and impassive, he was an admirable servant, though plagued out of his wits by Fanny Lappage and her vagaries. She was continually teasing him, and ridiculing him in the servants' hall, or the still room, and the long stone passages often echoed with her ringing laugh at Hegan's expense, whilst he could only stare stupidly, marvel at her cleverness, and admire her bewitching little face. Trail, the butler, and Mrs. Madden, housekeeper, had often and vainly remonstrated with giddy Fanny, Sometimes she really went too far. By a curious instinct, she had discovered that Hegan was nervous and superstitious. On this subject, she chaffed him constantly and mercilessly. Yet, strange to say, the more she flouted and tormented him, the more ardently he adored her. He was of a naturally silent and melancholy disposition, and it was Fanny's amazing liveliness that appealed to him. As for superstition, superstition was in his blood. As a child, he had listened to many a weird tale from the lips of an Irish grandmother, and this characteristic was kept alive, and even fanned, by conversations he overheard at his master's table, whilst he waited automatically, listening with all his ears. Lady Millard had imbibed the modern taste for the occult, 
and psychical speculations, and some of the experiences he overheard were so vividly described as to be almost hair-raising. Hegan's hand shook as he handed dishes and plates. Certain subjects lay beyond his mental reach, but one was easily comprehended. He understood a genial gentleman, a neighbour, who, with a jovial laugh, remarked, I suppose, Lady Millard, you know that you have something here, an apparition, and by all accounts it's pretty bad too. It is here. Lady Millard made a quick little sign, and then she too laughed and said something in French, and the guest replied, Oh yes, by Jove, all right then, another time. But all the same, the seed had taken root in Hegan's mind. Something had assumed alarming and sinister proportions. The family were yachting at cows. It was an unusually warm and sultry July, and the staff at Bramley, with nothing to do and an ample allowance of animal food and beer, felt more or less lazy, not to say comatose. The visit of Mrs. Pilcher, late caretaker, effected an agreeable diversion. This old body was full of stimulating local gossip and housewives' tales, and always well worth her tea. The maids encouraged her to talk. They drew her out, and she entertained them with amazing stories and they-says of the Millard family. You lived here fifteen years, Mrs. Pilcher, said the vivacious Fanny, and never saw anything worse nor yourself, eh? Come now. Why, surely there must be a ghost in a big rambling old place like this. Don't you tell me there ain't. There may be, rejoined Mrs. Pill, nursing her teacup as she spoke. But I never went about after dark. Tom and me alas sat in the library and slept in the morning room. Us hadn't the breath for stairs. And them above rampaged about as they liked. No need for us as intermeddling. And them passages and corridors for wind would skin you alive. Didn't you never say anything? persisted Fanny. Come now, we're all friends here. Only rats in plenty. The kitchen was black with them, and them as big as rabbits. Rats like rabbits, but nothing more. Come now, Mrs. Pill, surely someone has seen a ghost. Try and remember, and I'll give you a nice little present. I do love to hear of horrors. Well then, Fanny Lappage, since ye are so set on and eager, I did hear summat, summat as was told me by the folk as was here afore us, and left. <gasps> did they see anything? Oh, Jim, beckoning to Hegan, and Rosie, Ethel, and George, and Tom, do come along and listen. It's awful fun. Mrs. Pill is going to tell us about the ghost that's here. She will make our flesh creep. Won't it be lovely? I'm not so sure, muttered Jim, 
turning to Mrs. Pilcher. What's it all about, Mother? Mrs. Pilcher appreciated an audience. She wiped her mouth deliberately with a spotted handkerchief, rubbed her hands on her knees, nodded at the circle which had gathered about her, and cleared her throat. You all know the old wing, the long passage, and the swing door? There was a chorus of, Yes, 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 why to be sure? The three big low rooms looking south over the shrubberies and into the park, main old, they say. Well, it's there. And she paused dramatically. Mrs. Pill was a gifted storyteller. Afore our time, she spoke as if they had been deposed sovereigns. The caretaker and wife and girl lived in that wing, as it were warm and convenient. They allowed they heard walking and talking, but were never properly frightened, till one hot summer night, when the man was late in the village. There was a full moon, and it was that stifling they had the doors and windows open. Twas the middle room, you see. Mother and girl was a-making ready for bed, and the house locked up all of a sudden. They fell in a terrible taking, a sort of fright as threw em into a cold sweat, and they could not say for why or wherefore, but hot as it was, they felt like two blocks of ice. Then they heard the swing door slam, and someone in high heels come a-pattering along the passage. Nearer and nearer, there it must be in the doorway, for the floor had a loose board and creaked. They was awful afraid to look, as they knew in their bones something not right was standing there, and yet look they had to. And sure enough, right on the creaking board was a lady in a queer puffed-out sort of dress, awful old-fashioned. She had a long, shiny knife in her hand, and they too felt turned to stone. At the moment, they heard the man below shouting for the key of the side door, and the wife had just strength to tie it in her apron and throw it out of the window. Then... The lady went off, they heard her a pattering quick down the passage, and the swing door a slamming behind her. After that, they lived down below, but never saw her again, nor ever give her a chance, as they did not venture above after dusk. They say she had black eyes, and looked awful wicked, just set on ill-doing, built young and handsome. When the man died, he was found dead. They do say the wife and daughter come away and were thankful, and we took the place. But if it were my last breath, though I heard what I heard, I never saw nothing. (gasps) And so it's in the middle room, in the old wing, said Fanny briskly. I know, it has a high chimney piece and three windows. Aye, that's it. And they give out the noises, and the trouble is a less worser in summertime, and full of the moon. And 
that whenever you hear a board creak in these old floors, she is not far off. Mrs. Pilcher suddenly rose to her feet, shook the crumbs from her gown, and took leave. She understood the value of a brief and effective departure. At supper that evening, there was an animated discussion respecting the creaking board and the lady with a shining knife. Fanny, in the wildest spirits, challenged George, James, Tom, or Mr. Trail himself to go and meet the ghost in the middle room. She even offered them a vague reward. But no one came forward to pick up her gauge, in spite of her jeers and jibes. The household was, however, profoundly interested to recognize among the family portraits in the library the identical lady, as described by Mrs. Pilcher, with a long, thin face, black eyes, white powdered hair, and a mole on her chin. The days that followed were dull and drowsy. Fanny invested all her superfluous energies in incessantly tormenting James Hegan. At last he became desperate, and said, Well, look here, Fan. As you say, the moon is near the full. It's summer. Now's my chance for the ghost. But if I go alone to the middle room in the oak corridor at twelve o'clock, leave the door open, and bring your thimble from off the mantelpiece, and stay there for an hour, you will marry me. Come now. I'll go for that, and no less, I swear. To this ultimatum, Fanny, after much sparring and giggling, eventually agreed. Jim was a handsome fellow. Though he had no talk, he had more inches and broader shoulders than anyone in the house. Not to speak of considerable savings. Sir Eldred and Lady Millard were not expected for a week, and the ordeal was fixed for a certain day and hour. Fanny was unusually lively, talkative, and irresponsible, and all the underservants were agog with keen anticipation. When the great evening arrived, Jim, who was secretly in a deadly fright, and had fortified himself with two glasses of beer, was conducted to the swing door and seen off about eleven o'clock by all his associates, with many jokes and good wishes for the success of his adventure. He was too early. His friends had been so anxious to speed him. He felt a sense of dull resentment as he pulled the bay's door behind him, walked down the corridor, and entered the middle room, now flooded by moonlight. First of all, he went over to the chimney-piece and appropriated Fanny's dainty little thimble. Then, for a long time, he stood by the window, gazing on the sleeping woods and waiting. For what? He asked himself. The night air was hot and breathless. Every sound was audible, from the flutter of a bat's wings 
or the hoot of an owl, to the faraway barking of a dog, or the hum of a belated motor on the distant high road. Gradually, he became aware of a stillness, a chilliness, and a silence, as if nature were holding her breath prior to some prodigious effort. He was also sensible of a cold sensation of creeping uneasiness, and began to realize that his Dutch courage had evaporated, and that he felt sickeningly nervous. Tales from his grandmother, and tales from the dinner table, invaded his memory and repeated themselves with a vividness of detail and a plausibility befitting the hour, the locality, and the man. Yet so far nothing had happened. Possibly it was all nonsense and rot, urged another cheerful mental voice. His spirit stirred and rose. But what was that? A sudden reckless slamming of the swing door. Yes, and footsteps, quick, light footsteps, coming along the corridor. Hegan's heart flew into his throat. He felt almost suffocated with terror as he backed into the window and stared at the entrance. But the noise had entirely ceased, ceased for five immensely long minutes. For ten, there was nothing to be seen. With an extraordinary sense of relief, he turned away, leant his elbows on the open sash, and once more gazed down into the moonlit park. In ten minutes more, he would be free to go. As he stood listening anxiously for the striking of the stable clock, his senses were strung to the utmost, his ears alive to every sound. Suddenly, he heard the sharp creaking of a board and flung round. She stood in the doorway, a lady with a powdered head and bunchy petticoats. By one hand she held a handkerchief to her face, in the other was a long and glittering knife, and she was coming in. She was approaching. Panic seized upon him, and seemed to gnaw his knees. In a spasm of mortal fear, the frenzy of the trapped animal that turns on its destroyer, he snatched up a heavy old chair. Hegan was a powerful man. It was as a straw to him, in his present desperation, and he dashed at the figure in a fury of terror, struck it twice with all his force, and felled it to the ground. The thing gave a stifled shriek and moaned, yes, but he threw down his weapon and fled as for his very life. When he gained the hole, ghastly and breathless, he found an eagerly expectant crowd. The first footman, noticing his face, exclaimed, Hello, Jimmy, old boy. You look as if you'd seen her. Yes, he gasped out. She was there, knife and all. And what did you do? I picked up a chair and struck at her and ran. 
He was still livid and panting for breath. Several of the women looked at one another significantly. And at last, the cook said, Why, James, don't you know it was all a bit of a joke? Joke? he repeated, and his eye travelled swiftly round the circle, in speechless quest of Fanny. Where's Fanny? he asked abruptly. You've just seen her. The ghost was Fanny herself. We dressed her up and flowered her hair and... And... he added in a loud, hoarse voice. I believe I've done for her. I... I hit her a terrible blow. Fanny! Fanny! he shouted, and he raced up the stairs, followed by all the inmates of the place. They crowded through the swing door and streamed along the passage into the middle room. There, on the floor, lay a little dressed-up figure with a horrible wound in her head, a knife clutched in her grasp, stone dead. Nor was this the worst. When Hegan realized that he had unintentionally killed his pretty, mocking sweetheart, he kissed her, rose from beside her, and before anyone had guessed his intention, sprang on the sill, hurled himself out of the window, and with a crash among the branches, fell heavily on the lawn with a broken neck. Sir Eldred and Lady Millard, hastily summoned from cows, were horrified to find on their return home that two of their household lay awaiting an inquest in the old unused laundry. Their fate, the result of a practical joke. And for many months, Lady Miller deserted the place and made her home in continental hotels. At Bramley, the middle room in the oak corridor has long been closed. But the double tragedy has left its mark. After dusk, the maids go about in couples. A creaking board throws them into a paroxysm of terror, and they snatch at one another and whisper, She's somewhere about. For Bramley enjoys the unique reputation of being haunted by the ghost of a ghost.